I'm Lonnie Edwards, the founder of The Dog Agency and Pet Insider, and you're listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. This is a show about the latest and greatest across the pet world. Whether you're a pet parent or just a little pet crazy, Pet Insider has you covered. We get it. We're obsessed too. Cancer prevention is a huge topic that I have a a very strong interest in, and I think it's an area where veterinary oncology can be incredibly useful to human oncology. Because, to veer off topic for a second, in people, it's really, really, really difficult to prove something as a cancer-preventing agent. Because people travel, they eat differently, they're in different environments all the time. The pets are typically in one environment for most of their lives. We can pretty much regulate what they eat and drink. So, and and they also have a compressed lifespan compared to people. So, they live you know ten years where people live a hundred years. And so, they're the perfect quote unquote subject for doing cancer prevention research. If we can figure out how to prevent cancer in our pets, my God! And if we can translate that into people, that would be huge. That was Dr. Jerry Post, founder of the Veterinary Cancer Center and the Animal Cancer Foundation. Now let's get back to Dr. Post. Thank you, Dr. Post, for joining us. It's my pleasure. So you are a medical director and oncologist at the Veterinary Cancer Center. How did you get into that? Did you always know you wanted to be a veterinarian? Yes. So when I was three years old, I found out that uh, the dinosaurs were all extinct. And it was an incredibly traumatic experience for me because I always wanted to save the dinosaurs. And so I always knew I wanted to be a vet. And so when I figured that I couldn't save the dinosaurs, I realized I wanted to work on all animals. So backing up a little bit. So never strayed from that path. Never strayed. Always wanted to be a vet since I was three years old. Did you have pets growing up? I did when I was eight. That was okay. our first pet, and I couldn't wait. It was a dog, a miniature schnauzer named Mr. Chips. So you're now in vet school. So I'm in vet school, and uh, I wanted to be a, a wildlife or a zoo vet. Did some work at the National Zoo. What uh, drew you to that direction as opposed to traditional vet work? So I always loved wild animals. I fell in love with tigers when I was probably 12 years old, reading George Schaller's book, The Deer and the Tiger just thought they were the most beautiful thing on the face of the planet. And during vet school, that's what I wanted to do. And got a uh, the summer preceptorship at the National Zoo. And for my year... What's a summer preceptorship? So every year, the National Zoo uh, offers one clinical preceptorship and one... What's a preceptorship? So where you spend um, the summer working with their clinicians. Okay. And there's one per year for clinical work, and there's one per year for pathology. And so for my year, I was the person chosen. Can you go into what those are? Sure. So clinical, you're working on living animals, and pathology, you're working on analyzing why those animals that died at the zoo died. So I was at National Zoo for my year, and then the National Zoo said, well, go get a lot of clinical experience for your internship, and then come back for your zoo residency. So I went to the Animal Medical Center here in New York City, and I fell in love with diagnostics. And with zoo animals, you can't do a whole lot of diagnostics because it's uh, sometimes more risky to anesthetize the animal, draw blood, 
um, and figure out exactly what's going on than to treat for the likely cause. And why is that? Um, because these animals are not used to being touched or anesthetized. They're used to being out on exhibit in the wild. So is it how they've evolved that they're not as okay with anesthesia as well, traditional pets? Nope. I would say any animal or person, anesthesia is always a risk. And so when you're you know, looking to take blood or to do an exam or take x-rays on a giraffe, it's a huge process to anesthetize that giraffe or elephant or lion um, just to take a blood sample to find out exactly what's going on. Sometimes you have to shotgun um, and figure, hey, this is the likely path. Let's treat it for this likely problem. But why is it riskier for those types of animals as opposed to traditional pets? Well, with a traditional animal, you don't have to anesthetize them to take a quick blood sample. But for the other diagnostics, it's Um, the same risk. So for the other diagnostics, you don't have to anesthetize them for x-rays. You don't have to anesthetize them for ultrasounds. Um, So it's really a big risk of anesthesia. And also for these larger animals, like giraffes, when they get anesthetized, they can fall. Um, They can break their neck. They can break their leg um, if they don't. So also a function of them being so large, I guess, with a smaller Absolutely. dog, you can hold it. And Absolutely. And, and for really small animals at the zoo, there's the stress of just being handled because they're just not used to being handled. Um, and that can be incredibly stressful. Okay. But the actual anesthesia is not riskier on its own. That's correct. The, okay. And so at the Animal Medical Center, working on dogs and cats for a year, I just fell in love with diagnostics blood work and x-rays and CT scans and MRIs and genetic tests. What is it about that that drew you in? Finding out exactly what was wrong. So that really um, kind of lit a fire underneath me that that was my calling. And so I took a year off, practiced here on Park Avenue at a lovely animal hospital and small animal, and decided, do I want to go into zoo and wildlife medicine? Do I want to do um, small animal medicine? And if so, what specialty? And I realized that I really like to kiss my patients. And I really like to save species. And it was a different calling. And so uh, if I want to save an individual animal, I want to be able to go over it, pet it, and kiss it on the head. What I really wanted to do for wild animals and endangered species was to save the species, not save an individual. So I decided that I really had two callings. And so the first thing I did was um, did a residency in oncology because I love cancer medicine. It was the area of small animal medicine that I thought had the best crossover between what human medicine or human oncology was doing and veterinary oncology was doing. So that crossover and crossover of knowledge uh, where I could use knowledge from human oncology and they can use knowledge that we were generating from veterinary oncology fascinated me. Um, And that has really maintained that fascination throughout my entire 30 years in the field. And then in Fast forwarding in 2008, the practice grew and was... What year were we when you started doing So I started in 19... I graduated veterinary school in 1988. I finished my residency in uh, veterinary oncology in 1992. And then in 2008, um, our practice was successful enough where I could take some time off and I was able to go to Duke 
um, where I got a master's in conservation biology to address that other love of mine, which was saving species. So in 1992, I finished my residency, and in 1999, I started the Animal Cancer Foundation and the Veterinary Cancer Center. And what led you to start that? So um, the Animal Cancer Foundation um, really... I saw that individual veterinary schools were doing research about comparative oncology, so comparing the cancers that animals get and the cancers that people get, and they were raising money for themselves. But more and more oncologists were going into private practice. Probably over half of the veterinary oncologists, at least now, and probably half at that time, were split between veterinary schools and private practice. And Nobody was raising money for everybody. And, you know, the, Cornell was raising money for Cornell. You went I, to Cornell, right? I, I went to Cornell undergrad and, Me too. You know, and the University of Minnesota Veterinary School. And every of the universities were raising money for their own research. But nobody was raising money for everybody. And so I thought that it was time that somebody started raising money for comparative oncology globally because I really saw the importance of really translating the knowledge that we can get from animals with cancer and learning from them and translating that to people and vice versa, taking the knowledge that human oncologists were developing and transferring that knowledge to my patients. We had a PECON keynote about that with Billy Karish. Yeah, he's a fantastic, fantastic guy and uh, has done absolutely wonders with his organization, EcoHealth. And how have you seen the research grow and what we know change since you've been working on it? So dramatically. So when I first started veterinary oncology, we were only using traditional chemotherapy and radiation therapy really wasn't even being used now we are using traditional chemotherapy. We are using stereotactic radiation therapy, which is like radio surgery. You're using radiation that's incredibly um, and accurately pinpointed to just target the tumor. So you can give fairly large dosages of radiation to kill a cancer without adversely affecting all of the normal tissue that's around that. And so the technology has amazingly grown in terms of radiation therapy, and we're many more places are able to offer this stereotactic radiation therapy. In addition, we're now using targeted chemotherapy. So chemotherapy that targets a particular molecular pathway that's dysregulated or abnormal in a cancer cell. So you are um, kind of like a smart bomb. We're even getting to the point of using immuno-oncology and certainly in humans. And what is that? Immuno-oncology is harnessing the immune system itself to attack the cancer. And that's been huge over the past five to ten years in people. And the biggest advance has come because some incredibly bright people have found that the reason why the immune system wasn't working against cancer in people is because the cancer cells send out little chemical messengers when the um, white cells or the immune cells attack them that basically put the brakes on that immune cell. And now they can block that break. So the analogy I like to use is imagine you're in a car and you want to go somewhere and you're revving up the immune system, revving up the immune system. 
but the emergency brake is engaged. That car's not going to go anywhere. That's exactly what's happening with cancer and our inability to our the inability of our immune system to fight it is because the brake's engaged. And so by figuring out how to disengage that brake has dramatically um, helped many, many thousands of people with cancer. And we hope to do the same in animals. I feel like we hear more about pet cancer these days. Do you think there's a higher incidence of it? Or do you think it's because people are treating their pets as family and are getting them to vets more and getting it diagnosed? Yes. So I think there's a variety of causes of why we're seeing more cancer in animals. One, I think both pet owners, pet parents, and local veterinarians are doing a much better job at keeping their pets alive longer. And remember that cancer is really a disease of aging for the most part. The incidence of cancer rises in people up until we're about, let's say, 70 or 80. The incidence of cancer rises in dogs for the most part, you know, until they're six or eight. So that's one thing. Two, you're correct. People are considering their pets members of their family now, and so they're taking their pets to the veterinarian more often. And we're able to do more diagnostics now. So, you know, 20 years ago, you know, people didn't do ultrasounds, didn't do CT scans or MRIs, whereas now it's, I would say, much more commonplace. And so we're able to detect cancer when before we weren't even able to detect it. And, I, and I, I think also, I think the incidence of cancer, the true incidence of cancer is rising. I think we are seeing more cancer. Um, so it's really those three things put together that is causing um, the rise in cancer that veterinarians are seeing. And why do you think the incidence is going up? Because I don't think it's just that we're detecting more or that... Um, what do you think is causing it, though? Well, so um, I think because our pets are living longer is one thing. And Which so, is a good reason. Um, I think that's correct. So it's <laughs> a good reason. We're, we're seeing um, cancer as an age-related disease increase. I also think that just like in people, many cancers are increasing because of the environment that we live in. Um, but most cancers are um, diseases of random genetic mutation. Cancer prevention is a huge topic that I have a, a very strong interest in, and I think it's an area where veterinary oncology can be incredibly useful to human oncology. Because, to veer off topic for a second, in people, it's really, really, really difficult to prove something as a cancer-preventing agent because people travel, they eat differently, they're in different environments all the time. But pets are typically in one environment for most of their lives. We can pretty much regulate what they eat and drink. And, so, and, the, and they also have a compressed lifespan compared to people. So they live, you know, 10 years where people live 100 years. And so they're the perfect, quote unquote, subject for doing cancer prevention research. If we can figure out how to prevent cancer in our pets, my God, and if we can translate that into people, that would be huge. Is much work being done there yet? So we're starting to. Um, I would say more and more people are looking into cancer prevention research in the veterinary field now just because of the reasons that I've explained. And what does that look like? So practically you take a group of dogs and you follow them over 
their lifespan um, and determine what things were different in dogs that got cancer and what things were different in dogs that didn't. That's the first kind of step. And then the next step would be to address some intervention, give some dogs in a group substance X and the other group substance Y and see if there's any change in the overall cancer incidence in those groups. Um, and do by trial and error and good experimental design and see if we can decrease the incidence of cancer in dogs. And are certain breeds, certain types of pets more susceptible, dogs versus cats, smaller, bigger dogs? Absolutely. So certainly in dogs, there are certain breeds that are predisposed to cancer. Unfortunately, Rottweilers, and I have a Rottweiler, are predisposed to cancer. Flat-coated retrievers, golden retrievers, large and giant breed dogs are predisposed to bone cancer. Scottish Terriers are predisposed to bladder cancer. So yeah, there are breed predispositions. Um, probably one in four dogs will get cancer, whereas one in five cats will get cancer. So cancer is slightly less common in cats. And if you compare that to people... Is that people, tied to longevity at all or just tied to the type of pet? I think it's tied to the species. Um, and in people, the it's like a one in three chance of getting cancer in your lifetime. Can you tell us more about the Veterinary Cancer Center and how it's unique? Sure. So the Veterinary Cancer Center was started by myself and my husband in 1997. And so I was working up at a practice in Connecticut and uh, they were building a multidisciplinary specialty hospital at the time. And so um, we joined forces. Um, I kept my oncology business separate and I just saw patients out of their facility. Um, similarly, um, a referral hospital in Long Island was building a multidisciplinary specialty hospital. And again, I would see oncology patients out of their clinic in Long Island. And then I would do some um, consults in Manhattan. So I was traveling between Connecticut, Long Island, and Manhattan for years, building up the business of the kind of the veterinary cancer center. And then in 2005, we built our own 2,000 square foot facility. And then in 2011, we built at that time the largest privately owned standalone veterinary oncology center in the country. It's up in Norwalk, Connecticut, and it is an 8,000 square foot center dedicated just to oncology. And so we do chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and we, we run clinical trials out of the center. Um, and we were recently acquired by the Compassion First Network of Hospitals about two and a half years ago, and now we're expanding even further to um, add multidisciplinary specialties to our hospital. Can you touch on uh, what the Compassion First Hospitals is? So Compassion First Hospitals are a group of um, veterinary specialty and emergency practices all throughout the country. So the Veterinary Cancer Center is uh, one hospital that they now own, Red Bank Veterinary Center in New Jersey, Gulf Coast in Texas, and they own, you know, let's say, 35 other hospitals. Is the Veterinary Cancer Center the only one that's cancer-focused? That is correct. So the Veterinary Cancer Center is the only one that's specifically focused on cancer. There are oncologists at other 
practices, but the Veterinary Cancer Center is the only one that, at least at this point in time, is cancer-centric. Do you have plans to open one on the West Coast as well? So I'm, I'm not sure. It's certainly, we, Compassion First is always looking to expand. Unfortunately, cancer is a growing problem in the pet health industry. And so increasing access to oncologic care is, is always at the forefront. And you said you started it with your husband. So uh, how did you guys meet? Where's, what's the story there? So I was living in New York. He was on a business trip and we met at a club in Times Square. And is he a vet as well? Or he is he... not. Okay. He was in the IT marketing world. Okay. And then when I needed help uh, really expanding my business, he came and gave me a huge amount of help marketing and putting the business together. I'm really good medically, not so great. So you guys are a good fit. <laughs> we are a very, very good pair, yes. Was he a dog person prior to meeting you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he and his... Prerequisite. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, he and his family raised Rottweilers. Um, so yeah, we instantly hit it off in that aspect. And so for listeners that are scared now that their pets are going to get cancer, is there anything they can do, any preventative measures? Absolutely. So I would say a good balanced diet um, is one of your best friends. Can you touch on that a little more? Because I feel like pets generally eat the same thing every single day. Is that balanced as long as the actual meal itself has a good variety in it? Or should they be changing their food more often? So no, I would say, you know, m most of the good, you know, higher end, you know, pet foods are, are balanced. And um, no, it's actually not great to change your pet's diet day after day from a medical position I, you know rapidly changing a pet's diet often causes vomiting and diarrhea but changing like year to year is it okay for a, like a dog for example to eat the same dog food for six years absolutely you know if there's you want to do some variety i would stick within the brand but yeah my my dogs have eaten pretty much um the same dog food for most if not all of their lives same brand or same exact food, like same proteins? Um, so th sometimes it varies as they go through different life stages or if they've developed certain diseases you want to change. I would say most of them have kept with the same brand. And so, like, is it okay to stick to the same protein source, like the salmon-based food for six years, or should you do salmon one year, chicken the next? No, I would say staying with the same is often, I would say, recommended, okay. especially if your pet is doing well. Yeah, so balanced diet is one. Balanced diet is one. Two is, I think your you know, local veterinarian is your best friend in terms of if you see something on your pet that's abnormal or changed, have it checked out. So what are examples of things people can look out for? Absolutely. So probably the easiest thing that people can look out for is any lumps, bumps, or nodules on the skin. Many of them are benign. For you to be able to tell that, probably bringing your pet into your vet and having them evaluated with either with a physical exam or with a small what's called fine needle aspirate where you stick a small needle into the nodule, take some cells out, and look underneath the microscope. Painless for your pet and can tell often the difference between benign problems and malignant problems. So that's uh, number two. Are most uh, cancers in pet tied to visible symptoms? So I would say skin cancers are, un are common. The two big cancers that we see in veterinary oncology are something called lymphoma and mast cell tumor, M-A-S-T, mast cell tumor. 
Lymphoma is analogous to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in people and often presents in dogs as just quite enlarged lymph nodes externally that an owner can feel. And what does that mean, that type of cancer? So that type of cancer is a cancer of the lymphatic system. So the lymphatic system is part of our immune system. You know, when you get swollen glands, well, those swollen glands are lymph nodes. And when those lymph nodes become malignant, um, that's lymphoma. And the best place for an owner to kind of monitor that is when they're petting their pet underneath the jaw, like the angle of the jaw where you have swollen glands in people, or behind the knee um, in dogs. Those are the two easiest places, at least that my owners find, to feel those glands. And mast cells are typically small, raised, red skin lesions on a dog's fur. So if you see those, and they don't always have to be red, they don't always have to be raised, um, that's just the typical finding. You should certainly bring your pet into your um, veterinarian to have them evaluated. And just like with people, early detection yields better outcome. But th th so those are the two most common cancers that you can see externally. Unfortunately, a lot of cancers occur internally. So if you have a large or a giant breed dog and they start limping, absolutely bring those animals into your vet because the sooner you detect that, the better. With smaller dogs, if they start limping, you probably have a whole lot more wiggle room in terms of, oh, it's just a sprain or, oh, it's you know, not serious. But with a larger giant breed dog, if they start limping, it really should be evaluated sooner rather than later just because of the high incidence of bone cancer in those breeds. And what diagnostics they run? Sure, excellent question. And so typically x-rays or radiographs will be taken of the leg and then the radiologist will look and see, hey, that bone looks normal or that bone looks abnormal. That's probably the best way to tell whether a pet has bone cancer or not. In terms of other common cancers that we see, there's a type of cancer called hemangiosarcoma, which is unfortunately quite common in golden retrievers. Typically, we don't find those cancers until it's fairly late because it doesn't cause any problems until those cancers start to bleed and the pet starts to get weak or collapse or the belly starts to get full with blood. And so that leads me to kind of my next recommendation, which is in middle-aged to older dogs, having routine blood work and abdominal ultrasound and chest x-rays at some interval to try and screen for problems that you can find earlier, I think is helpful. You know, the, the unfortunate issue is those tests are not inexpensive. And I understand the finances um, of taking care of a pet. But if you're asking for my recommendations, regardless of cost, I would say middle-aged and older pets should be screened with blood work, abdominal ultrasound, chest x-rays, and a good physical exam. It's really the best ways to find cancer at its earliest time. So for the annual exam, when they take the blood work, uh, what percent of cancers can be detected from that standard blood work, or is it a special type of blood work they need to take? Yeah, so it, it, it's standard blood work, and most cancers, are you don't see a specific cancer marker in the blood. You're looking for abnormalities. Is the liver working, you know, as it should? Are those values 
Correct. Are the, are the kidneys working as they should? Is there any signs of gastrointestinal disease? So you're looking for signs of abnormalities that then would point the veterinarian to do more further tests, diagnostics yeah. that are more specific for a cancer. But the blood work is just really to make sure that there's, you know, overall health is, is excellent. To jump back to preventative, aside from balanced diet and bringing the pets to the vet, is there anything else? Are there things you see that they can avoid? Yeah, so... I think just like with people, um, the things that we would do to prevent cancer are probably things that I would recommend to do for your pets. So clean water, good balanced diet. There certainly is some indication that feeding a high level of cruciferous red, yellow vegetables to your to certain pets can prevent bladder cancer in some breeds. Un- unfortunately, just like in people, we know very little about cancer prevention. Um, I, I will say smoking. It's less of a known risk factor, but certainly I would avoid smoking around any pet. But in cats, that smoke residue settles on their fur. And then when they groom, they ingest it. And there's a higher incidence of gastrointestinal lymphoma in cats um, in households who smoke. And so there is a definite risk. Why of, do you think it's more so for cats than for dogs? Because of the way cats groom. From licking um, their That's correct. Stuff. So they, they lick their fur um, fairly constantly and they ingest Got those it. chemicals. Because I'm a Frenchie person. Are there are Frenchies predisposed to any specific types of cancer? I had a Frenchie as well. You did? Lola. She was fantastic. <laughs> she was one of the best dogs ever. They are the best dogs. So we we do see some cancers in Frenchies and other brachycephalic dogs. So we see um, brain cancer is unfortunately much more common in those breeds, as is heart-based tumors. For all Uh, brachycephalic or just Frenchies? um, For most brachycephalic breeds. So Frenchies, Pugs, Brussels Griffon. Correct. Correct. Um, and then on the flip side, those brachycephalic breeds, if they do get things like mast cell tumors, they tend to behave less aggressively. I'm not saying don't worry about it, but they tend to behave less aggressively than in other breeds. Tell us about your Frenchie. So I rescued um, the Frenchie, Lola, uh, let's see, about 12 years ago. So I had Six months prior, lost my miniature schnauzer, Smokey, after 15 and a half years. And we still had our Roddy. And we went to Madison Square Park. And uh, Cody was playing. And uh, this couple was walking two French Bulldog puppies. And so I got down on the floor and started playing with the French Bulldog puppies. And looked up, and the owners looked sad. And I said, well, what's wrong? And they said, well... We just got back from the vet, and the female has a heart problem, and we need to send her back to the breeder and have her euthanized. He said, well, what type of heart condition? And they said, well, we really can't afford the diagnostics. I said, well, let me see if I can get a cardiologist to do an echo. I got that. She was diagnosed with pulmonic stenosis, which is a constriction of the pulmonic valve. And long story short, I said, well, if I adopt her and can have her fixed, um, would that be okay? And I called the breeder. I said, you know, if if I take possession of the dog and you give the people another puppy, is that okay? You know, nothing, no financial aspect on your part. So he he said yes. 
So we took uh, Lola up to Tufts, uh, and we had a balloon valvuloplasty done on her, which uh, they put a balloon catheter in her heart valve and expanded it to try and make it bigger. And it worked a little bit, and she was supposed to last a year. And she lived for 10 years. And she was had the biggest personality of any dog I've ever had. She was awesome. Just awesome. She loved life every single second of every single day. For brain cancer, what's the best way to detect for that? Yeah, so if you have an animal who's having any type of neurologic signs or seizures, um, the best way to tell whether it's due to a malignant problem, cancer, or a non-malignant problem is to do an MRI. That's the best way to evaluate the brain and nervous system. We have to go under anesthesia for that, I'm they assuming. Do. Yeah. They do. Okay, so now <laughs> let's go to a more positive topic, uh, your charitable work and research. Can you talk to us about some of the charitable work you do? Sure. So I would say the foundation that I started is the Animal Cancer Foundation, um, and that's an organization dedicated to really ridding both pets and people uh, of cancer. And I started it in 1999, and it's been growing dramatically over the past 20-something years. And we really serve to educate the um, community about the value of comparative oncology research. And so what is comparative oncology? So comparative oncology is utilizing the knowledge that we get from looking and studying people with cancer and the cancers that people get and transferring that to veterinary oncology and vice versa, looking at the cancers that animals get and doing research on cancers in animals and transferring that to people. The one thing I will say we never, ever induce cancer in pets in order to do research because they've been inducing cancer in mice and rats for years and, and, and getting really valuable information from those models of cancer, from those rat models, from the mice models. And that's the standard model of how researchers look at cancer and cancer therapies. It really hasn't translated into dramatic cures for people. If you're a mice or a rat, we can cure your cancer. But it hasn't really translated as much as we had hoped. And that's because the cancers that those mice and rats get are not spontaneous cancers. They're induced cancers. The cancers that people get are spontaneous. We develop cancers from a variety of things, random genetic mutations, smoking, what have you. The cancers that dogs and cats get are also spontaneous cancers. So they're a much, much better model for looking at cancer in people. In addition, those dogs and cats that get cancer, they have an intact immune system. Their immune systems are working just like the immune systems of people who have cancer. And we treat animals for cancer. So we take the tumors out, we give them chemotherapy, we give them radiation therapy, and some of those animals do well and some of those animals don't. And that's the same type of interventions that we use in people. So by looking at in animals, again, because they have a much more compressed lifespan, we can find out what works, and equally as important, what doesn't work in dogs and cats with cancers that are treated in a certain way and apply that knowledge to people 
in a much shorter time frame. So we can do treatments in animals and get an answer in one to five years, whereas it could take 10 to 20 years to get that same answer in people. And you're also one of the expert vets for One Health Company. I am. I'm their chief veterinary officer. Um, And so the One Health Company um, is just a fantastic group of people really looking to change the way that um, cancer is treated in in veterinary medicine. You talked about Inogenics? Sure. Inogenics, I'm one of the founders. So Inogenics is a company that does gene expression assays on dog tumors. So when a veterinarian um, diagnoses a cancer in a pet, they do so with a biopsy. So they take a piece of that tumor, they send it to a lab. The lab pathologist looks at the slide and says, yes, this is cancer. Well, when we then at Inogenics can take that slide, send it to our lab, and we can look at 192 genes of that cancer and tell which genes are upregulated or downregulated in that cancer. What does upregulated and downregulated mean? So, in other words, um, which genes are turned on too much and which genes are turned off, which genes are normal. So we can look at the abnormal genes in that tumor, and that can help guide therapy. So you're also on the board of directors for the Riedel and Cody Fund. Can you talk about that? Sure. So the Riedel and Cody Fund was started by my husband and um, one of our clients who's become a close friend of ours now. And it was started because David, my husband, and I, we lost our Rottweiler, um, Cody, to cancer and Mark Tillinger lost his Riedel to cancer, and we were able to do really everything for them. Um, and when we lost those dogs, we got together and like, we would really like to give back to the community and allow people who can't afford to do what we were able to do for their pets with cancer. And so um, they really started the, the fund to assist people whose pets had cancer, um, and they, the different difference between their foundation and others is they gave fairly large single amounts of money to those people to allow them to um, treat their pets with kind of gold quality care. They've treated hundreds of animals over the past number of years, grants you know, between one and $5,000. It's been a wonderful experience. Um, and, you know, seeing pets that are potentially still alive because Riedel and Cody funded their treatment, is, it's just awesome. And you're also on the board of directors for Saving Species. What is that? So Saving Species is what we like to describe as a small but fierce foundation dedicated to saving endangered species around the world. Our science advisory board is unbelievable. So E.O. Wilson is on our science advisory board. Um, Tom Lovejoy is on our science advisory board. And my mentor um, and founder of Saving Species, Stuart Pym, who's one of the world's leading conservation biologists, and my mentor at Duke, is on the science advisory board as well as the founder. And what we do as an organization is CPR for the earth. So we connect, protect, and restore degraded lands. So we'll look around the world where there's a piece of degraded land that could connect 
to protected areas, let's say. And what is degraded land? So degraded land is land that's no longer in its natural habitat and one where endangered species may not want to go in because there's a huge amount of human presence. So land that's been transferred to, you know, cattle, gra- cattle grazing or, you know, soy farming or all of the trees being chopped down for lumber. That's a de- piece of degraded land. And so we try and identify very strategic pieces of degraded land that would connect to um, parcels of protected land. And by connecting those two parcels, you dramatically increase the total area that the endangered species have in order to live because they can travel through that corridor. And the science that we use, so we've shown in scientific publications that that process works. And with the satellite imagery, you can actually see the parcels of land that we've bought. And then we find local partners, local people, who will repopulate that land, will restore that land. And you can actually watch that through satellite imagery. So it's, it's really, again, unbelievably rewarding to see the projects that Saving Species has funded flourish and be successful. And we've found species of frog that were thought extinct on parcels of land that we've helped restore. And, it's you know, it's just incredible, just incredible. And lastly, I'm not sure how you managed to do all this, but you are also on the board of directors for the Collaboration for Environmental Evidence. What is that? So the Collaboration for Environmental Evidence is an international organization that really hopes to elevate the levels of evidence for any environmental intervention. And so, for instance, does the greening of roofs work to lower temperature? What and is dec- that? So when you put a garden on top of a building, instead of just leaving that building's roof of whatever material it was built at, you put a garden there. Um, Does it affect water flow for the city and water usage and water runoff? Does it decrease heating um, for that building? Things like that. What interventions are most useful for saving species? Things like that. And so it's an amazing group of people all throughout the world that serve to look at the levels of evidence that we need. What other studies need to be done in order to raise the level of evidence so we can say with absolute certainty or with a higher level of certainty, hey, you should do this if you want to achieve that. And so um, that's been incredibly uh, rewarding to work with as well. We've put on two international conferences, the first one in Stockholm, the second one in Paris, and the third one in 2020 will be in Ottawa, Canada. Is that... Something we could attend, or is that fully Absol- absolutely no? Together? So so absolutely. So it's it's open to the public. It is again the people that attend tend to be incredibly both knowledgeable, fun, and and kind. I, I one of the things that I have found is whenever you're working with animals or the environment, the people that are attracted to those groups are typically wonderful kind (laughs) you know and and really lovely to be around when is that event that is going to be in 2020 um probably probably april April. of 2020 um the website is if 
Google Collaboration for Environmental Evidence. Um, the dates for the conference haven't been set in stone yet. So Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was so interesting. My pleasure. That was Dr. Jerry Post, founder of the Veterinary Cancer Center and the Animal Cancer Foundation. To learn more, visit acfoundation.org and vcchope.com. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please leave us a five-star review and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you have any pet-related topics you want us to cover, email us at podcast at petinsider.com. I'm Lonnie Edwards, and thank you for listening to the Pet Insider Podcast. Talk soon!